Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Giants of the Faith podcast, where we look at Christians from the last 2,000 years who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. In this episode, we're going to look at the 18th century religious reformer and a great proponent of missionary work, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, Count of the Holy Roman Empire. Nicholas was born in Dresden, Saxony on May 26, 1700, to parents Charlotte Justine von Gerstorf and George Ludwig. His father was an advisor to the King of Saxony, and he also carried the title Count, which Nicholas inherited. Unfortunately, George died of tuberculosis only six weeks after Nicholas was born. Within three years, Charlotte was remarried, and Nicholas was sent away to live with his grandmother, Henrietta Catherine, Baroness von Gersdorf, in her castle. Zinzendorf's family was Lutheran, and they were part of a movement within Lutheranism called Pietism. Now, the Pietists believed in a truly personal relationship with Christ. Now, they sought to walk with the Lord in a posture of quiet prayer and contemplation, avoiding distractions like dancing in the theater. Now, they truly tried to live in the world, but not of the world. Young Nicholas was raised such that he was surrounded by Bible reading and hymn singing, and he grew up loving Christ. His favorite book, apart from the Bible, was Luther's Smaller Catechism, which he read devotedly. He would often write prayers to Jesus and throw them out the windows of the castle where he lived. One story that testifies to his religious fervor as a youth happened when he was six years old. Swedish soldiers captured the castle where Nicholas lived, and when they entered the six-year-old Nicholas's room, they found him at his usual daily devotions. He was undeterred by the commotion and the soldiers' presence, and he continued with his prayers. And when the soldiers heard him speak and pray, they were awestruck, and they just let him be. Now, when Nicholas turned 10, he was sent to Hall to study under August Frank. Frank was a pietist Lutheran minister who had some responsibility for training the children of the local nobility. Zinzendorf spent six years in Frank's care, where he learned directly from Frank and from other tutors. He learned Greek, Latin, French, and even some Hebrew. And by all accounts, he was an excellent student. Zinzendorf often ate at the Franks' table, and it was a formative experience for him. He delighted in speaking with Frank of the Lord's work and hearing from ministers who were guested with the Franks. Now, one in particular was notable. The church at Hall had sent two evangelists to India. One of the men returned to Saxony, and Zinzendorf was moved by his tales of ministering in a strange land. Now, this planted the idea in Zinzendorf's mind that mission work was a noble and a glorious undertaking. In 1716, Zinzendorf left Hall for Wittenberg to attend the university there. But before he left, he and some friends established what they called the Order of the Crane of Mustard Seed. This was a spiritual society, a sort of knighthood, a secret society, dedicated to the service of Christ. The order had three tenets. First, to be true to Christ. Second, to be kind to people and third, to take the gospel to the nations. Zinzendorf would take these principles to heart, and they would guide his steps throughout his life. Throughout its existence, the order would grow to include church and secular leaders from all stripes who were dedicated to growing the kingdom of God on earth. Zinzendorf, being raised and educated by pietists, had been brought up with certain prejudices against the mainstream Lutherans. At Wittenberg, he began to lose those prejudices, Wittenberg was not a pietist institution by any stretch, but as he studied under and he lived with the professors and students there, 
He recognized the love that they had for Christ in his church. And even though these men might do things like attend the theater, or go to dances, or any other thing that Zinzendorf's family might find worldly, they were still Christians and they were entitled to his respect and his love. At Hall, Zinzendorf developed a sense of importance of missions and missional living, and it was here at Wittenberg that he began to appreciate the importance of Christian brotherhood, regardless of which strain of Christianity one followed. It was where his ecumenical bent was formed, and when Zinzendorf finished his studies at Wittenberg, he took a grand tour of Europe, visiting the cultural and learning centers of the continent. This was the thing to do for young men of a certain status in that time. During his tour, he was further exposed to different Christian perspectives by engaging with Roman Catholics, particularly with French Cardinal Louis-Antoine de Noël. Zinzendorf and Noël would remain friends and correspondents throughout the rest of the Cardinal's life. The Cardinal even became a member of the Order of the Grain of the Mustard Seed that Zinzendorf had begun at Hall. Zinzendorf's transformation into a true servant of Christ was completed in 1720 during his Grand Tour. In Dusseldorf, he came across Domenico Fetti's painting, Behold the Man, and he was shaken to his core. The painting shows a robed Jesus wearing the crown of thorns. There's a Latin inscription at the bottom of the painting that reads, This I have suffered for you. What will you do for me? It was then and there that Zinzendorf dedicated his life fully to Christ, and he committed to doing whatever Jesus led him to do. I'll put a link to this painting in the show notes so you can check it out if you'd like to. And when he returned to Saxony in May 1721, Zinzendorf bought an estate at Bettelsdorf from his grandmother. In June, he began the duties that his title required of him, and which meant that he began service at the royal court in Dresden. While at Dresden, where he was only required to be during certain months of the year, Zinzendorf began holding house church meetings in his apartment. Folks would gather to hear the word of God, to share in Christian fellowship, and to sing hymns many of which Zinzendorf wrote himself. A life was moving ahead quickly for the young Count, and he decided, after much prayer and study, that it was good and proper for him to take a wife. But he wasn't interested in the typical qualities a young nobleman would look for in a wife. He didn't want political advantage, a large inheritance, or any kind of prestige. He didn't even look for romantic love. He wanted a mate who shared his faith and his dedication to it. He wanted a woman who was dedicated to serving Christ. And he found that in the Countess Erdmuth Dorothea von Roos, younger sister to one of his friends. After a brief courtship, the two were married on September 7, 1722. After the wedding, the couple had to return to Dresden to fulfill the Count's duties. But they really dreamed of setting up a Christian community at their estate in Bertelsdorf, somewhere that Christians could gather to live lives dedicated to Christ and in community with each other. It wasn't long before Providence intervened and answered Zinzendorf's prayers. A man showed up at Zinzendorf's apartment in Dresden. He had heard that the Count was a good man of great faith who might look kindly on religious refugees and offer them a place of safety. The man called himself Christian David and said that he was a member of the Moravian Church. Now, the Moravians grew out of a movement that Jan Hus had started in Bohemia in the 15th century. You can learn more about Hus in episode 14 of Giants of the Faith. Anyway, this is exactly what Zinzendorf had prayed for. Maybe not in the exact way that he had expected it, but it was an answer to prayer nonetheless. Zinzendorf agreed to allow the Moravians to stay at Bertelsdorf, and in December 1722, ten refugees, six adults and four children, 
showed up at Zinzendorf's estate. Zinzendorf wasn't even there to greet them, but he'd sent word to the manager of his estate, Johann Heitz, that they were expected. Heitz settled the Moravians on a plot of land near the estate house, and they got to work building homes. Heitz wrote to the Count to tell him that the Moravians had arrived and they were settling in, and it was Heitz that chose the name for the settlement, Herrenhut, which meant under the Lord's watch. Zinzendorf returned to Bertelsdorf for Christmas, and he and his wife visited with the Moravians to pray with them and to bless their new homes. The Count felt an instant bond of Christian brotherhood with the Moravians, and he knew that he had made the right decision by inviting them to stay. Christian David made several trips to Bohemia and convinced many members of the church to come stay at Herrenhut. Zinzendorf's community was growing. In May 1724, construction began on the first large building in the settlement. Zinzendorf was building a structure to house a school, a print shop, and an apothecary. By May of the next year, the population of Herrenhut had grown to about 90 Moravians, and it was becoming a small town. And then the town began to expand beyond the Moravian refugees. Lutheran pietists, Anabaptists, ex-Catholics, and more started coming to Zinzendorf's refuge. They brought with them industry and trade, and by the end of 1726, there were more than 300 inhabitants of various religious persuasions and nationalities. Now, this variety brought with it some strife. There were arguments over religious practices and beliefs, and how church services should be held. There were squabbles over long-held regional or national differences. There was even an excommunicated Lutheran minister that began to sow discontent and took aim at their host. He claimed that Zinzendorf was the Antichrist from the Book of Revelation, and he threw the whole community into an uproar. His influence faded, however, after he went mad and left the community. Now, Zinzendorf was worried that the community that he'd built would disintegrate. To keep this from happening, he and his wife moved into the academy and began to take a daily, active role in building a spirit of Christian brotherhood there. Zinzendorf got to know each family individually, and he became sort of a counselor or pastor or spiritual advisor for them. And then he developed a set of rules for conduct at Herrenhut that he called the Brotherly Agreement. The Brotherly Agreement consisted of 42 points that governed how the inhabitants were to deal with each other, conduct themselves, and treat both brothers and strangers. For example, point 2 says, Herrenhut and its original old inhabitants must remain in a constant bond of love with all children of God belonging to the different religious persuasions. They must judge none, enter into no disputes with any, nor behave themselves unseemly towards any, but rather seek to maintain among themselves the pure evangelical doctrine, simplicity, and grace. And then point 14 says, For the sake of the weak, no light conversation is to be allowed concerning God and spiritual things, but such subjects ought always to be treated with the greatest reverence. Now you can see just from these small examples the importance that Zinzendorf placed on a spirit of Christian friendship and fraternity. The community took to Zinzendorf's rules, and a new spirit of unity was formed. So I've also linked to the brotherly agreement in the show notes. Now you can read all 42 rules if you're interested. In August of 1727, the residents of Herrenhut began an around-the-clock prayer vigil. Twenty-four men and women agreed to take one-hour shifts around the clock to pray for the community and for God's will to be done. Now, this challenge was picked up by others in the community, and the prayer vigil became a continuous one. And it continued not only in Herrenhut, but in other places too. Moravians in distant cities and later distant lands set aside an hour each day for prayer, such that the Moravian prayer vigil 
lasted for over a hundred years in Saxony and beyond. Having improved the relations at Herrenhut, Zinzendorf set about to provide some legal protections for the community. He worked with leaders both secular and from the churches, and traveled all over Saxony building support for his efforts. And in support of that, groups of residents from Herrenhut began traveling throughout Europe and Britain, visiting churches and ministering in them. They encouraged Christians to live pious lives and to participate in personal study of the scriptures. These groups helped outsiders understand the value of what was going on at Herrenhut, and they attracted many new residents, and they were also a precursor to the missionary efforts that would soon take place. In 1731, Zinzendorf was invited to Copenhagen to witness the coronation of Christian VI of Denmark. Zinzendorf didn't want to go, but he decided that he should put the question to the community. After discussion and prayer, it was decided that the count should attend, and he agreed, now believing that something big would occur during the trip. And that something was that he met a West Indies slave named Anthony Ulrich. Ulrich had been brought along to the coronation by his master, and Ulrich described for Zinzendorf the horrible conditions the slaves faced in St. Thomas. But Ulrich was concerned for more than the physical hardships that the slaves suffered. He'd become a Christian, and he was desperate for someone to preach the gospel to the slaves there, which included his brother and his sister. There were churches in the West Indies, of course, but those churches were for the white Europeans, and the slaves were completely without spiritual guidance. Zinzendorf hurried back to Herrenhut to share what Ulrich had told him about the needs of the slaves to hear the gospel. And as he spoke to the community, God stirred the hearts of two men, Leonard Dober and Tobias Leopold. And both men volunteered to go to St. Thomas, but Zinzendorf advised them to wait. Over the next year, the community discussed and debated whether or not to send the two young men. No clear answer was found, and there was no unanimous decision, so they decided to cast lots. And when they cast the lots, Leopold was told to wait, but Dauber was told to go. And the community carpenter, a man named David Nitschmann, volunteered to accompany Dauber, and they immediately set out making plans to leave for Copenhagen, where they would find passage to St. Thomas. The men left Herrenhut on August 21st, 1732, and headed to Copenhagen. Now they booked passage on board a Dutch ship, and on October 8th, they set sail. They spent 10 weeks at sea, and landed in St. Thomas on December 13th. Nitschmann had come along in a support role. The idea was that he would help build a cabin for Dober, and then return to Herrenhut. And that's what he did. He returned to Europe in April of 1733, while Dober remained behind and began his ministry. He witnessed his slaves individually, and even won some of them to Christ. One of these, a young man named Carmel Oli, would accompany Dober to Herrenhut the next year. He was eventually baptized and given the Christian name Joshua, but he died on March 28, 1736. But he is honored as the first fruit of the Moravian missionary movement. The Moravians continued to send missionaries to the West Indies. Seventeen went to St. Croix in July 1734. Eleven more arrived in May 1735. But the passage and the journey was hard on the missionaries. Out of the first 29 missionaries that went, 22 died. And so the Moravians retreated from the West Indies for a while. But their broader missionary efforts were not deterred. Their community spirits had caught fire, and by 1742, they'd sent out more than 70 missionaries to places like Lapland, Greenland, the Jewish Quarter in Amsterdam, Algeria, the Guinea Coast, North America, Romania, Constantinople, and more. Now that's 70 missionaries from a community of fewer than 600 souls. 
But as Herrenhut flourished, things were not all positive for Zinzendorf. His political and religious opponents had had him banished from Saxony. He and his wife left Herrenhut and they took up residence in an abandoned castle near Frankfurt. Undeterred, he started a new community called Herrenhag, or the Lord's Grove. Herrenhag grew even larger than Herrenhut, and it followed the same principles. Zinzendorf set up what was called the Pilgrim Congregation as a sort of executive committee to oversee the missionary efforts of the Moravians. Now, this committee traveled with Zinzendorf throughout all the years of his exile, and he was constantly on the move, visiting places as far-flung as Holland, Berlin, Switzerland, and even the North American continent. During this time of exile, Zinzendorf was made a bishop in the Moravian church, cementing his role as a spiritual leader in the movement. The Count was especially interested in eliminating the division caused by the different Christian denominations. In North America, he argued that because there was no history of Christianity there, there was no need for different denominations. He sought an ecumenical understanding between all Christians. There could be one Christian church, like what had been formed at Herrenhut. Obviously, his attempts failed, though his group did give Bethlehem, Pennsylvania its name and he did lead many mission trips to minister to American Indians. In 1747, the Count's banishment from Saxony was lifted, but he continued to spend much of his time at Herrenhag and abroad. He traveled to St. Thomas, and he set up a headquarters for the Moravian missionary movement in London. While headquartered in London, one of his sons, 24-year-old Christian, died in 1755. Zinzendorf and his wife had 12 children, although only four made it into adulthood. The loss of Christian was particularly upsetting for Zetzendorf, as he had eventually planned for Christian to take over leadership of the Moravians. But as difficult as it was for Zinzendorf, it was doubly hard on the Countess. It was the final straw, and within a year, she was dead. In truth, things had been pretty cool between the Count and the Countess for some time. Her place in the ministry had mostly been taken over by a woman named Anna Nitschmann. Anna was the head of the single women in the mission, and she was often at Zinzendorf's side, traveling where he went, helping arrange things in the ministry. Zinzendorf's biographers are quick to point out how much he grieved his wife's death and how he regretted not spending more time with her. Perhaps, but within a year of the Countess's death, Zinzendorf and Anna were married. And because Anna was a peasant, Zinzendorf surrendered his position as head of a noble family. This new marriage would only last three years. Zinzendorf became weak and he returned to Herrenhut to live out the final years of his life. He breathed his last on May 9, 1760, and his wife Anna died two weeks later on May 21st. By the time of his death, the Moravians had sent 226 missionaries to locales around the world. They were the first Protestant church to engage in missionary work, and they continue to serve as a model of kingdom building and Christian brotherhood. And that's it for this episode of Giants of the Faith. Until next time, God bless.